Do you have a lazy person in your life? I mean, do you know like several? Do you have lazy friends? People that just don't want to leave their houses or go out and do anything or experience any kind of life and they they just want to stay in their house, apartment, whatever and be solitary all the time. They don't they don't want to keep a job. They don't want to clean up their room. They don't want to clean up their house. They don't want to throw anything away. Matter of fact, probably most of them are hoarders. I mean, you know the type. They're always either quitting or getting fired for preventable reasons, like missing too many days or just not showing up, like not showing up and doing the job properly or just, they just don't want to do anything to better themselves. They just want to get paid to do nothing. They don't care what you complain about or how much you complain or what you say to them. It just never changes anything. And then they still live with like their mom or their dad or an aunt or grandma. And they just sponge off of them. Sit in the basement playing video games, smoking pot, drinking. I mean, just fucking loser ass people. Or what people consider loser ass people. I, I used to be like that. I used to be judge, jury, and executioner. And I judged everybody for everything. I mean, anything that you could do as a human being. Guess what? I judged you. If you were fat, I judged you. If you were too thin, I judged you. If you were what I considered lazy, I judged you. If you were at work all the time and ignored your family, I judged you. I mean, if you used drugs, if you used alcohol, if you were depressed, if you were anxious, if you were human fucking being, I would judge you. I did. I, I, I would judge you in my head until I couldn't judge you anymore. And if you weren't successful, I wanted just nothing to do with you. Which makes absolutely no sense because I'm not a successful person. And I will probably never be a successful person. So for me to be judging people based on what I saw and not based on who they were was really fucking shitty of me. And I guess I'm reaping what I sowed now. I mean, I, I, judged, I judged all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons until I started to see that I was reflecting myself everybody that I saw that I found something in them to judge it was because that was happening to me or I was doing that or it was something that I couldn't help or I couldn't stop and I mean I did it all I really did I I was a shitty I was a shitty fucking person until I realized that I, I was so deeply and profoundly everything that I so casually judged. I mean, I managed to stay employed one time for nine months. And another, a few years after that, I had nine jobs, ten jobs for the whole year. I'd get fired all the time or I'd quit. Usually it was because I would call off too much or... I just didn't 
I didn't do what I was supposed to do because I didn't understand what I was supposed to do. Maybe whoever was training me didn't really properly explain what I was supposed to do. Uh, there were times, though, that I would quit because I just felt this... Fuck. I can't say anything more than overwhelming sense of anxiety and just dread and doom and if I went in that building something bad was going to happen to me and I could not shut it off I didn't know what it was that was causing it I didn't know why I felt like I just couldn't do it I couldn't I couldn't get out of the car I couldn't go in the building I couldn't even move and I would show up to work half an hour to an hour early every day just to psych myself up to go into the building so that I could do the job that I was getting paid to do. And so that I wouldn't lose my job. I mean, effectively, so that I wouldn't lose my job, really. Um, but, you know, I would call in and I would feel so relieved because I didn't have to go in. I didn't, I didn't have to force myself to pretend to be someone I wasn't. I didn't have to pretend that I wasn't completely full of anxiety or completely depressed or just absolutely physically unable to fucking move. I jeopardized hundreds of jobs. I mean, I'm 41. I've probably had anywhere from 50 to 75 maybe jobs in my working life. And I... I get it now. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought, I'm invincible. Nothing can take me down, man. I'll be around forever. If I die, it'll be a quick death. It'll be something stupid like wrecking my car or or whatever, being abducted. I don't know. I've, I've, I just had a lot of shit in my head, ideas that I thought were going to be my future and they were going to pan out and everything was going to be perfect. And I was going to own a house and be a super successful person by 30. And at 30 years old, I was into a three-year depression where I didn't leave my house because I couldn't. Even just thinking about going to the grocery store threw me in such a panic that I, I, I just couldn't. I'd talk myself out of it every time. I felt like such a fucking piece of shit. Like, I just... Nothing I tried worked. Everything I was doing was wrong. My doctor didn't know what was going on. She'd always tell me, Oh, well, we'll just, we'll just do some, see, some tests, some blood tests, and see what, see what we can find, if anything. And I went with it. I thought she knew best... I really thought that she had my best interests at heart. I really did. I think everybody's like that. When you find a doctor, you really have faith that they're going to know what's going on and they're going to help you. But that doesn't always happen. I mean, actually, it happens a lot less than people think. People watch these TV shows like Grey's Anatomy and Scrubs and stuff, and they think, oh, I'll just go to the doctor, and they'll know. They'll know what's wrong, and they'll do all these tests, and... And everything will be fine. But in reality, you go to the doctor and you're telling the doctor your symptoms and you're telling them what's wrong. And they look at you like you're fucking retarded. I mean, they look at you like you have lost your mind. 
They don't know what the hell is wrong with you. They have no freaking idea. So essentially, you're left with trying to figure it out on your own because who else is going to figure it out? I mean, and I'm sorry, but when you're in the throes of this, you don't know how to even verbalize what you need or what you want because you can't find the words to speak. This is why so many autistics are nonverbal. It's not because they can't speak. It's because they cannot find the words. Words are simple. The words that people use when they're in the middle of, of what's happening are very simplistic. Like, I, I chose words like, I feel bad, I don't feel well, I, I need help, I just, from my head to my toes, I, I fucking hurt, I'm depressed, I can't leave my home, I, you know, and everybody takes it as a mental thing, and it's not a mental thing, this is nowhere, it, it does produce mental symptoms if you're not proactive about it, or if you don't really know what it is once you find out, and you take the steps that you need to take, it's so much easier to combat the mental pro part of this, the mental process, because there's just so much at work and at play when you are a disabled person. And I think that a lot of people lose sight at what disability actually means. I mean, when you lose your leg, people can see that. When you lose a finger, an arm, when you, you know, you're paraplegic, people can see these things. But in people like me, you can't see it. It's not something that presents itself to your face. It doesn't come out and say hi. This is hidden deep within your brain. And it gets misdiagnosed. It gets ignored. It gets marginalized. And it gets misdiagnosed so much. I mean, it's to me, it's an absolute travesty that I have lived 41 years, and out of those 41 years, I have maybe had three that I know of that were not completely full of pain and depression and anxiety. And when I say pain, I don't mean like I can take a couple Advil and I'm fine. I mean pain that is so deep within your bones that you don't know how you're going to take your next step. Like physically, take a step. Walk forward two steps. Walk backwards two steps. Turn around. Bend over is impossible. You can't bend over because the minute that you do, you put too much pressure on your brain, you lose consciousness, you pass out. It's, it's deemed a rare disorder. However, it is not rare. It's probably the most common disease that I've ever, 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 ever seen. Out of the maybe 30 to 50 people that are in my private little circle of friends, there are probably two of them, only two, that don't have this. And I don't know who they are because everyone that I know personally that's close to me all have it. All of them. Every one of them. And what I mean by that is if you're the type of person that someone says to you, I need to talk to you, and it's someone close to you, so you respect them and, you know, you, you want to make sure that your relationship is good, like a husband. Okay, yeah, let me use that example, actually. So if it's like your boyfriend, your husband, your very close best friend, and they just simply text you the words, 
hey, I need to talk to you later. Your brain just melts and you panic and you feel this rush of adrenaline and then you feel crazy. You feel anxious and nothing can calm you down and you're running around and you're, I don't know, manic, I guess at this point, you're doing things that don't make sense. You may be doing dangerous things. All of this is triggered by your brain. Every bit of it. Your brain is sending out the wrong chemicals in, in too many high doses. And it's it's insane to me that as a nation that's so far advanced in technology and medicine that we have not come up with a way to help people like me not have to suffer, not have to kill ourselves, not have to stay in our homes and be depressed for years and having people ignore us and just think that we're bitches. And, you know, it, 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 it goes back and forth all the time. It's, it's the, the anxiety lasts for, the anxiety probably lasts for, I mean, I would say anywhere from like a day or two to months where you're just manic and, and you're going to be labeled bipolar. You're going to be labeled ADHD. You're going to be labeled schizophrenic. You're going to be labeled autistic. You're, you're going to be labeled everything mentally. And that's all they're going to see because that's what presents on the outside. All that people see is how you are as a person, how you act, what you say, the words you choose, the actions you choose. All of this is the only presentation that, that this disease has. It's all mental. That's why people tell you everything's in your head. It's okay. It'll be all right. It's all in your head. Just take a breath, calm down. These are things we can't do. We can't calm down. We can't take a breath. We can't stop. We can't think. We can't focus. Because at that moment, you've got an overdose of adrenaline, an overdose of cortisol, an overdose of dopamine, an overdose of serotonin. All of these neurotransmitter, neurotransmitting chemicals are rushing through your system. So what happens? All of a sudden, that panic sets in. Then you feel, you actually feel the adrenaline coursing through your kidneys and it hurts. It stings for a minute. And then you maybe have some kidney pain throughout the day, maybe for like a week or two, you maybe think you even have like a UTI. So you drink your cranberry juice and you do what you're supposed to do. You go to your doctor, you get your antibiotics, but it doesn't go away because it's not going to, because it's not an infection. It's not an infection. So what ends up happening is you go into that tailspin, like I said, you're anxious, you're manic, you feel crazy, you act crazy, you're mad, you're raged. I mean, it's, it's insane. You're so mad at the simplest things. You can punch a hole in the fucking wall. You can tear a door off its hinges. You can hit your kid. You can say horrible things to your children that you can't take back. All because something is happening to you physically that you your body cannot process. You just, you don't even know why it's happening or what's, what's happening. And then 
you get what I call the recovery phase. And for me, the recovery phase is when all of that is over and I start to feel calm while calmer. And I start to feel myself sliding into that depression, this muddy, tarry film that you're, you're trying to wade through it. You can hardly open your eyes. Your body hurts so much. Your bones are just aching and nothing you do makes it feel any better. So you, you, you sleep, you sleep for hours, eight, 12, 16, 25 hours, just straight. You're not thinking about anything. You have to, you have to go to the bathroom constantly. It's, it's just, it's a constant. You're in the bathroom probably more than you're doing anything else. You're really thirsty. You're hungry, but you don't really know what you want. You overeat, you overindulge. Usually this is when most people want to smoke weed. You just, you just feel like a shell of your former self. And I can personally tell you that once you enter that depression, you may not come out. I almost didn't. Back in July last year, I sat on a wooden swing set and stared out into a field of corn with a little single blade knife. I mean, it was just a little pocket knife in my hand, just staring at my arm, just thinking if all I, if, if I could do anything right now, I would just slice these veins so that I could just be fucking done and just die. I wrote three, four suicide letters every single day. I wrote to my children every day. I wrote to my granddaughter every day. I, this, this went on for a month. Maybe longer, actually. It was probably about a month. And I decided that I just couldn't handle it anymore. And my ex was not helpful at all. He was, he is a very abusive man. And the things that he says don't have an effect on me maybe right then. But I do, I do think about what he says to me. And when you hear that you're worthless and that how the hell could you quit another fucking job? And how are you going to pay him money to, you know, pay the bills and help out with no job? You, you take all of that and you absorb it and you start to, to think like, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to give you money? How am I going to help you? How am I going to make any of this happen? Because you know, I know, I can't. I can't. I, there's nothing I could do. All I could do was sleep and rest and, and try to breathe. And that's the other part of this is when that recovery phase hits me, that's an overdose of noradrenaline, which is the opposite of adrenaline. So it slows everything down. I mean, to a fucking snail's slime, it slows it down. You literally feel like you are wading through mud and muck and, and tar, and you, you, you can't move your feet, your legs feel like lead, your arms feel like lead, you can't lift your arms above your head, you can't think even for 10 seconds, someone tells you something, and two days later, they say, well, don't you remember? Well, no, I don't remember, because I didn't have a functioning fucking brain cell then. I couldn't remember anything. I couldn't speak. The only thing I could do was write, because I couldn't find the words to speak. And even my writing didn't make any sense. 
it was just something that I thought would pull me out and it didn't. At any rate, that was last year and we're now, I mean, I've, I've been unemployed since March of 2020 and it's not about to change. I've gone through four rheumatologists, three PCPs, two neurologists, and I'm now at a hematologist. And I I know now what's wrong with me. I, I know completely what's wrong with me. It's just getting the doctors to listen is the problem. Because we all know that doctors are egotistical and they think that they know best and they have the education. I'm not arguing that they didn't have an education. I'm not arguing that they don't know more than I do. I'm not arguing any of that. What I'm arguing is that they don't understand what people like me go through every single day of our lives. How hard it is for us to just simply stay alive or simply want to stay alive. Because, man, when this happens, and it, and it hasn't happened in a long time, I've been able to keep it away. But when it happens, it is detrimental to your survival as a person. And I mean, I, I need to emphasize that seriously. It is 100% profoundly detrimental to who you are as a person and your survival in this world. Depression and anxiety don't just happen. Bipolar doesn't just happen. ADHD doesn't just happen. And there is no such thing as everybody's a little autistic. That's not a thing. And we really need to stop saying that. We also need to stop referring to everything as being bipolar. Because that is also detrimental to people. And their survival. I mean, it makes it sound frivolous. And it makes it sound like it's not a big deal. And everybody has bad days. We're not talking about bad days. We're talking about months, years of being stuck in a life that you don't want. That's not frivolous. That's a big deal. And it should be taken as a big deal. So when you have a friend tell you that they can't get out of bed and they don't know what to do and every day feels exactly the same and it's just, they're just depressed, don't immediately suggest that they go get a psychiatrist or they start seeing a counselor because the problem may be physical and it also may be something that people can't see. The mental manifestations of these disorders is a big deal. They're big deals. People need to start looking at the whole picture. It's not, a person is not just comprised of a brain. A person is comprised of all kinds of systems and they're all supposed to work together and they're all supposed to regulate each other. But that doesn't happen in people like me. My systems are there, don't get me wrong, but they don't function properly. They're, they're, they malfunction a lot, actually. And I think that if I were ever given a chance, like seriously, if anybody, if, if the choice was ever offered to me to live or die, I would want to die. I mean, I still want to die. I don't want to do this anymore. 
I don't want to constantly feel like I'm battling myself. I don't want to feel like it's an it's a war between my brain and my body. I don't want to feel like a burden. I don't want to feel like everyone is just supposed to support me because here I am and I can't do it myself. That's not the way this works. But those are the thoughts that I have in my head. Like, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do when your body does not do what you need it to do? I mean, it's, it's the best rhetorical question ever because it literally has no answer. You can't do anything when your body refuses to do it. So the disorder that I'm, well, there's a few disorders, but the first disorder, let's talk about that. The first disorder is Ehlers-Danlos. Ehlers-Danlos was discovered by two Frenchmen in France with the last names Ehlers and Danlos. So what they discovered was a woman who was 5'1", I believe it was, was very skinny, very thin. Her skin was very thin. You could see her veins through her skin everywhere. She was mentally challenged, which is pretty much my first indication always. Um, she had other processes that weren't normal. And so they discovered that she also could bend her arms and her fingers and her legs and her knees more than their other patients could. So they developed Ehlers-Danlos. She was the first case. Since then, you have to think. I mean, it's not beyond the realm of reality to think that if this started, maybe not started in France, but maybe it was just discovered in France, how many people settled in America from France? How many people settled in England, Scotland, Ireland, Germany? I mean, it's everywhere. And it's, it's, it's there if you know what you're looking for. And it's not hard to see when you do. If your friends are like you are and they can move their joints in, in different ways and manipulate their bodies to do things that they couldn't normally do or that a normal person couldn't handle, then guess what? That's, that's what it is. It's Ehlers Danlos. So in this episode, I want to talk about an attack, a big attack, actually the biggest attack I think I've had since I was 20 and pregnant. I was working at a turkey processing plant as a housekeeper, and I had made friends with, um, with a woman that was basically just helping me do my job because she saw that I was struggling and she didn't want to point it out because she didn't know if I would be offended. So she just quietly helped me. And I fought it until I realized that I really needed her help because I was not in a good place physically, not in a good place, mentally, definitely not in a good place, but physically I I was not in good health and she could see that. So 
we became friends and then we became best friends and then she became more like a big sister to me and that's how our relationship was she would talk to people and they would tell her about their day and everybody did that with me too I just felt like I was kind of the little sister to her big sister so in November everything was fine I felt I felt okay it was it was all right and then out of nowhere we had a freak snowstorm and it was not feet by any means but it was enough to make driving hazardous and all day that day she had kind of seemed anxious and distracted and I asked her about lunchtime 5:30 or so I asked her if everything was okay because I was really I was really getting concerned about how anxious she was getting about the snow and she said she was all right but she was worried because the tires on her car or no the brakes weren't weren't in good repair she had just had the tires replaced but her brakes were not not good she knew that they needed to be replaced and I followed her around all night I tried to make her feel better I tried to explain that you know if she needed a ride home it wasn't a big deal somebody could give her a ride or I could give her a ride and she assured me that everything was fine she was just kind of worrying but it wasn't a big deal and we were supposed to make chicken and noodles she was going to make the chicken and noodles I was going to make the mashed potatoes and we were going to have dinner the next night at work we did this every night we had dinner every night at work she fed me all the time she was a very nurturing woman and I got up the next day and the snow started to melt and it was beautiful the sky was clear it was probably 50 some degrees and it felt really great outside it was beautiful and I started to get ready for work and I remembered I was supposed to make the mashed potatoes I had 20 minutes until I had to leave for work and my job was an hour away from my house so I knew I didn't have time so I looked in my kitchen for a minute for a pan and as I'm looking for the pan I keep saying to myself I have to bring the mashed potatoes I can't forget to bring the mashed potatoes and a little voice that I cannot explain where it came from it was a disembodied voice said to me it doesn't matter and I thought well sure it matters it's chicken and noodles we need mashed potatoes that's gonna be a big deal and then I thought well maybe it doesn't matter because I can just stop off at, you know I can go to Walmart at lunch or something and grab the Bob Evans ones that are already made so I just stuck that in my head and that's where it was that's what I was gonna do and I got in my car and I started my car and out of some ridiculous habit I just happened to open Facebook and I saw on my boss's page comments about some woman that had died the night before and I 
was kind of taken back. Like, who, who could this be? We worked with her? Who was this person? And I started to read. And the comments were all about Kathy. Every one of them. And then it hit me who it was. And I lost my mind. I cried in my car for 45 minutes. I didn't know how I was going to make it to work. I couldn't think. I couldn't fucking do anything. All I could do was cry. That started the first, the, the last attack. Well, not the last one, but the second to last attack. That started it. And I went to work anyway. And on my way to work, my best friend was messaging me, bitch, you need to call me. You need to call me. Something happened. And I messaged back and told him I knew what happened. It was okay. I was on my way to work. And when I got in, everybody was so sullen, so sad. I mean, it was like the entire tone of where I worked just got reduced to nothing. So I went in and all of my close friends, they all hugged me and told me how sorry they were and I couldn't stop crying. And I just fell apart. I really fell apart. And I tried so hard to get through that day. I tried so hard. I tried to force myself to stay. But everywhere that I looked, I saw her. I saw her in the stuff that wasn't getting done. I saw her. And I, I just froze. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. Every part of that factory reminded me of Kathy. Every part of it. There wasn't anything that I did in my day that didn't revolve around Kathy. So I asked to go home. And I went home and I cried the entire rest of the night. I just, I lost it. I didn't didn't even know who I was anymore because she kind of defined me at that job. She made me the, the person that I was. We bitched together. We we cried together. We told each other stories. We shared our, our lives with each other. Like she was as close to a big sister as I was ever gonna get. And she just was an amazing person. And to not have her there anymore, to vent to, to bitch to, whatever. I just I just didn't know how I was gonna how I was ever gonna be okay. And it took me down. The recovery phase for that lasted until until March, until my next attack. And in March the attack happened because my boss told me that she needed to have a meeting with me and I knew what that meant in my head. I thought I'm getting fired. This is great. This is the last damn thing I need. And I felt that rush. I felt the adrenaline. I felt the dopamine. I felt it all. And I, I started to panic and then my heart started to beat fast and I started to talk louder and I started to freak the fuck out. And I went into the meeting with my boss 
and her boss and his boss. And we discussed my performance at work, which was a joke because they all knew I was grieving, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. That was never taken into consideration because they didn't give a shit. And I knew when that meeting was over that I was going to be a different person because I was going to have another attack. So they moved me from my home, my side of the factory that I'd known for two years, to another side of the factory that I was familiar with but not comfortable with, with all new people and things that I didn't know yet. And that caused me to miss a month of work. I had called in for a month. My doctor had given me the note that I needed to stay off of work for an entire month. I was convinced I had COVID because I couldn't breathe. I couldn't fucking move. I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand. I could not function as a human being. Functioning ceased. I couldn't do anything. And I literally mean anything. Standing over the stove to cook a meal was not going to happen. Uh, even walking to the microwave to heat something up, that it took me a half an hour to just walk to the microwave, put a, a container in there, hit the button, grab a fork, and go back to where I was sitting. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think. It was so hot. I couldn't manage any of my body systems at all. So I slid into a depression, a horrifying depression, actually, because once I had gone back to work, I realized that there was no way I was going to be able to do this job anymore. I was standing on a line, throwing pieces of raw turkey into packaging, and I, I just physically couldn't do it. I was leaning against everything. I was, you know, I, I could not stand up straight. My back hurt so much and it hurt so much to breathe <clears throat> that I just couldn't do anything. I was, I was incredibly stuck where I was. I had to leave the floor every 20, 30 minutes or so just to sit down so that I could try to breathe and calm down. Once I had to quit, that's when everything just came to a head. I was trapped at my abusive ex's house with no money, no means to buy anything if I needed it, no way to really do anything. I couldn't do anything. So I did the only thing that I knew I could do. I laid in bed. I got depressed. I wrote suicide notes. I just was trying to die. I was trying to die. I really was. I didn't know what to do to speed the process up, but I wanted to die. And out of that came the decision that I needed to just get the hell away from him because it was making it worse. Every time he would yell or scream or bitch, I could just feel it starting up again. So, I moved in with my mother, 
because I didn't really have anywhere else to go and because we needed to fix our relationship anyway. So I moved in with my mom and I learned how to meditate. I learned how to, to keep myself calm. Well, calmer, I guess, not calm, but... And I had it under control, for the most part, until my dumbass decided to go to the amusement park with my friend. I really thought that was going to end up being a good idea because I was going to get out of the house for a while, was stay in a hotel for a couple of nights, he was going to drive, he was paying for everything, so none of that was a burden to me, so I thought, why not, I'll just go and we'll go to these amusement parks. The first day that we got there, to the first amusement park anyway, it was a slow start for me on the walk from the car to the gate. I mean, waiting in line, while stand, I was standing against anything that was stationary. I was just leaning against it because I knew that I could not stand up and breathe at the same time. It just, it wasn't going to happen. Once we got inside the gate, we sat down and we drank some pop and gave ourselves a couple of doses of tincture oil. Um, it was the sativa strain, which is my favorite. And I think it was called Blood Orange. But I double-dosed myself with that to try to help just calm things down. And he suggested that we hop on this roller coaster. And what he didn't tell me was that it was, that it was the biggest coaster that the amusement park had. And it was wooden. Two no-nos for me, for sure. So, I told him that I was not interested in writing anything because I had just gotten my last adrenaline attack somewhat under control, and I didn't want to make it happen again. And I told him what would happen. I told him that I was going to end up fucking feeble. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I couldn't handle that. I really couldn't. And he decided that he was going to pressure me into getting on it, telling me, oh, well, you used to love to write them. Why don't you just get on with me? It's it's not going to be that bad. It'll be fine. And and if anything happens when we get off, I'll just I'll just get you one of those scooters and stuff. It's, it'll be all right. You know, we'll, we'll figure it out. Oh, yeah, we'll figure it out, I'm sure, because it's happening to me. But you give so much of a shit that you're pushing me into riding a ride that I'm telling you is going to cause an attack, and you don't give a fuck. Apparently, you're not as good of a friend as I thought you were. So, I get on this roller coaster. The minute I sit down and that bar goes over my legs, I'm freaking out. I'm sweaty. It's a cold sweat. My hands are clammy. And I'm thinking, it's on. It's already happened. I can't even get off now because it's it's going to happen regardless. So, I went with it. Why not? It's an experiment. Let's see what happens, you know? So, that rush started. That rush of adrenaline started. Oh, my God. I just, I knew it. Within seconds of coming to that, the top of the first hill, I passed out. I mean, just right as we come up over that hill, I passed out. And I knew I passed out. I felt it. The ride caused this whiplash and all the g-force 
caused me to be completely unable to fully lift my head back into an, any kind of normal position, which is how I knew that I was continually passing out. I, I tried so hard to just lift my head and sit normally, and I couldn't. I, I was slumped over. I was almost bent in half. We got off the ride. I was drenched in sweat. I was nauseous. I was disoriented and absolutely unable to concentrate, focus, anything. All I knew was I needed to sit down and I needed to eat something salty immediately because that would help restore some of the electrolytes that I lost with all the sweat from the attack. So he decided that he was going to ignore my request to just take a minute so that I could get back to some kind of baseline to go forward with the rest of the day. Because people don't really understand what happens to you when this happens. When this happens, your entire systems shut down. Your autonomic process shuts the fuck down. That means your temperature regulation is gone. You're gonna be cold, you're gonna be hot, you're gonna be so hot that you can't breathe. Everything makes you sick or mad or depressed or irritated. You just don't know what the hell is happening to you. Oh. And I decided that I, I should not do anything more. I sat at a picnic table alone for about five hours while he decided to go off and ride his roller coasters and have his fun. Never mind the fact that I was suffering and absolutely miserable and just wanted to go home. I was shaking, sweating, unable to lift my arms, unable to walk, unable to talk, unable to breathe. When he was ready to acknowledge that something horrible had happened to me on that roller coaster, I explained it and he expressed his regret that he pressured me into writing it. But he kept saying over and over and over, which I now find so incredibly disrespectful. But you should have seen your face. I wish we'd gotten a picture. You should have seen your face. <laughs> and I thought, I can't believe that you would even say that knowing that everything I told you was going to happen, happened. And now I'm miserable. And you're delighted. That makes me feel good. It, it just really made me feel amazing. And then he said, I could tell you were having a bad reaction. And it's not like I could do anything about this. Where was I going to go? I had no money. He drove us there. I knew I didn't know where we were and I wouldn't have had the ability to drive back even if I could have gotten a car. I thought about an Uber, but guess what? No money. So I just suffered through it. I tried as hard as I could to follow him around and do all these things that he wanted to do. And oh boy, it was, it was absolutely, absolutely miserable 
oh my God, for hours, hours and hours he was there. He wouldn't leave. Oh God, he kept asking if I was hungry or thirsty, but I was so miserable. And then every time I heard the coaster behind us start to go, I had flashbacks and I would panic again and I could feel it again. And it was constant because everywhere we were, there was a coaster somewhere. I overdosed on tincture oil and it barely affected me because my adrenaline was that high. My cortisol level was that high. I barely felt the tincture oil and I probably had three milliliters of it at least and it was doing nothing. So I just kept dosing. All this happened to me about 9, 30, 10 o'clock and he made me stay there until almost five. We got checked into the next hotel at about 5.30, and I knew I couldn't carry my bag. I grabbed my CPAP machine and my water for the CPAP machine, and once we were in the room, I adjusted the pillows, changed it in my pajamas, set up my machine, ate two pieces of pizza, and I fell asleep, and that was probably 6.30. I couldn't even force myself to stay awake. I slept until 8 a.m. and woke up to diarrhea, nausea, and a headache. I mean, when I say headache, I mean pounding, throbbing, fucking migraine. My stomach and my muscles were cramping and spastic. I could barely walk downstairs to get to a car to have a cigarette, to stop the anxiety, to slow down my heart rate. Once I got to the car, I started feeling that feeling that if I didn't get to the bathroom fast, I was going to have an accident. And that would have been insanely embarrassing. So I just decided I got to go back in the building. I had four hits maybe off that cigarette. Went upstairs and continued with the diarrhea. Continued with the nausea. Continued with the fucking migraine. I ran. I ran in as fast as I could. But the lobby didn't have a bathroom. So I had to get upstairs quickly. And I was stuck in that bathroom for so long that my legs cramped and had gotten worse. So I got a hot bath going in an attempt to settle down my systems and stave off a Ray's or Raynaud's flare. Which didn't work because then I was just exhausted from the bath, from the hot water, the heat, and just everything that was happening to me that I really truly just didn't understand. But it always had happened to me, so it was familiar, but... It wasn't anywhere I wanted to be. Once we got to the next amusement park, panic set in again. The walk from the car to the gate was probably about a quarter of a mile. And it took me about an hour to get there. Almost. It was, it was pretty close to 45 minutes, but it took us to walk up there. Once we got to the gate, I asked the, the, the kid that was scanning tickets and, you know, looking through bags and stuff, I asked him if they had a chair, just one spare chair that I could just sit on to catch my breath and calm my systems down. And he told me, no, we don't have anything like that. And I said, so what happens if someone comes to the park that has a medical condition that requires them to have to sit down? And he's like, I mean, I don't know. We've got curbs and stuff over there. So that's where I went. I went and sat on the curb, put my head between my legs and tried to fucking breathe. 
tried to calm down, tried to breathe, kept doing it over and over my head. Just calm down, just breathe, just calm down, just breathe. But everything, every noise, the smell, everything brought me back to the day before and kept initiating these attacks, kept fucking happening. I mean, it was like every 10 minutes I could feel the adrenaline all over again. Oh my God. By the time we got in there, Aaron realized that I definitely was going to need a scooter because there was no way I was going to be able to walk that part. So he rented me a scooter, which I was apprehensive to use because I thought I'm taking this away from someone that needs it. And then the thought occurred in my brain, stop thinking that way. You do need it. And I, I stopped. I, I realized I did need it. No matter what I did, nothing was ever going to get better. I needed the scooter. I was not going to make it through the park. So I drove the scooter around. I felt like a big piece of shit. I felt like I was robbing someone that genuinely needed the scooter of having a good time at a park. All because my supposed friend wouldn't take no for an answer. And I'm a people pleaser, unfortunately, which is a big, big God habit. So even driving and steering and accelerating that scooter was difficult because the level of arthritis that I was experiencing was something I had never experienced in my life. The level of orthostatic intolerance was something I've never experienced. The level of sweating and just trying to breathe and think and, and coordinate my muscles and my body was insane. Everything was vibrating in my body. Everything, my bones, my muscles, my head, everything was vibrating. Even going to the bathroom from the scooter was almost impossible. I had lead weights for arms and legs. I had a brain that just could not form a thought. My only thought the entire time was I want to go home. I just want to get out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. This is almost a year later and I can still recall both of those days, and both of those days give me incredible PTSD. Both of those days have changed, significantly changed, who I am, how I function, how I operate, and what I'll allow to happen. And I, I wish I could change it. I wish I could go back. I wish none of it ever had to happen. But if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't have had that experimental process in my head of if I don't do it, I won't be able to test my hypothesis. I won't be able to test my theory. I won't have any kind of knowledge. I'll be stuck still trying to figure out what is wrong with me. And I didn't want that either. 
So I just decided to go with it. And when I got home to my mom's house, I slept for days just trying to recuperate, trying to recover. I was already in the recovery phase, but the recovery phase can be worse than the attack. Especially if you are prone, like I am, and you're not able to pull yourself out of it. Because, in my honest opinion, I don't think anyone's capable of pulling themselves out of this. It's it's what causes people to get so depressed that the only thing they can do is to kill themselves. It is the only thing. The only thing that causes that. 